Holy and gracious God, I pray that you pour out your Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts that they might point us to your love and grace working for good in the world. May the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Some of you may have some very deep and fond memories of part of this morning's gospel reading. The 16th verse, it may be the first verse that you memorized as a child. It may be the clearest, most concise summary of the gospel of all of Christianity, your life and faith that you have to offer to another human being. Whether or not John 3.16 holds much personal significance to you, it holds a tremendous amount of cultural sway, whether you prefer it that way or not. Back in the 1970s, it became a hugely popular thing to hold placards with John 3.16 Uh, Sometimes they would be in end zones, Uh, it would be behind uh, home plate at a baseball game. There was a cultural movement for Christians to begin uh, publicizing their faith in such a way. There was one individual uh, at a loss for what his name was, but apparently he used to wear very uh, bright rainbow-colored clown wigs, and he would make himself... uh, very visible at sporting events. He went on to do this uh, in multiple venues. He always was drawing attention to John 3.16. Sometimes, depending on uh, where you spend your time, uh, if you're in Metro Nashville on occasion, you might come across this, where fire and brimstone street preachers are more than happy to spew word vomit, and somewhere on their poster boards they have John 3.16 posted. And as folks go in and out of coffee shops and getting lunch, that is the public witness that is most often, though negatively, tied to John 3.16, at least when it's on a placard. In 2009, America, one of America's favorite quarterbacks, Tim Tebow, when he was still playing uh, NCAA ball, was bound to compete in the National uh, Bowl Championship game, January 2009. And in the weeks leading up to this, Tim Tebow later uh, recalls he was wrestling, trying to figure out a way that he could take advantage of the platform he was given as a NCAA quarterback playing in a game in which tens of millions of people would watch where he could make a witness of faith. So I don't know if you watched the game or not or remember this moment where he put eye black on. And then in a white marker, he put John 3.16 uh, and kind of split the difference between uh, John on one side and 3.16 on the other. 94 million folks, give or take, uh, during the course of that game and in the hours afterwards, got on the internet to Google what John 3.16 was. 94 million people, about 30% of folks in the United States got online because of the coverage that Tim Tebow got that night uh, playing in the game. For hours after the game, John 3.16 was trending on every social media platform as folks were trying to make sense of what this citation was. I'm sure that the faithful, people who knew exactly what John 3.16 was, got online just to double-check to make sure they knew that that was what he was referring to. 
people of faith, the undecided, ex-Christians, atheists, agnostics, maybe on the fence folks, looked to say, what is he trying to say? What is he trying to do? Millions of folks watched that bowl game that night, as they do every year. And I wonder how many people made a decision for Christ that night. How many surely scoffed at the high visibility attempt to evangelize, to wear his faith on his sleeve or in his, on his face in that moment. How many closed out browsers as soon as they realized that it was a biblical citation because they knew that friends and family had already kind of drew, drawn the line on whether they were in or out based on a decision for Christ. Unfortunately, the, the boundaries of salvation, the boundaries of the church are far too often tied up in the way that we handle John 3.16, maybe the 17th verse on occasion. For good or for ill, John 3.16, in most cases, is the public witness for the church, for Christianity in its many, many forms. It's tied up with American evangelicalism probably more than other traditions. It's preferred for its concise summary of God's love for us, of God's redeeming efforts in Jesus. It's not a bad thing in and of itself. I don't have a distaste for the verse in its standalone reading. It's when Christ followers amplify it. When John 3.16 is everything, take it or leave it, that it becomes a distorted volume, like a speaker that's turned up way too loud. We can't hear anything else. We get this on occasion. Martin Luther said, Reformation Martin Luther, 500 years ago, said, John 3.16 is the gospel in a nutshell. Everything you need to know about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit is right there, one verse. It's been translated in to more languages, more local dialects than any other piece of literature in history. At least that's the urban legend. It's Christianity's chief export anywhere in the world. Imagine missionaries going abroad into a place where the Bible perhaps has not yet been translated. If you have to communicate across those lines, John 3.16 is the best way to do it. In recent weeks, a lot of Ink has been spilled, a lot of airtime given to the late Reverend Billy Graham, America's pastor, the pastor of presidents, probably the Christian evangelist with the greatest reach in the television, digital media age. More folks have come and made a decision for Christ, have been introduced to a life of faith as a result of his ministry than probably any other human being Graham excelled throughout his ministry in communicating a four-step plan for salvation. God's purpose for us, for humanity, is to have peace. We are separated from God. Jesus bridges that gap in separation through the cross. And the fourth point is it is our invitation, our possibility to make a decision for Christ, to receive Christ. It's so easy, so straightforward. It's clear. 
My pushback is that maybe there's more texture to the gospel than sin management. Or pointing folks to the sweet by and by on the other side of the grave. Peter's story. Peter's story was a bishop in the Methodist Church of South Africa. He led Methodists in South Africa during the struggle against apartheid. And in all of the remembrance of Billy Graham, somebody reached out to Peter Story and said, how do you remember him? Peter Story says his mandate to preach the gospel, plain and simple gospel. He said the problem is there's no such thing as a plain and simple gospel. What he really meant was that he would only offer half the gospel. The half that invited people to face their personal sins without confronting the other half, the systems that help people do their sinning for them. A distorted gospel presentation makes it seem like soul-saving so we're heaven-bound is the most important work of the church. And I do fear that that is our public witness more often than not, that that's how people perceive the church, perceive our efforts, perceive our agendas, that we can't have authentic community, that we're always trying to move someone towards a decision for Christ, that we can't have relationship on any other grounds, that we're after something. Maybe, maybe we're missing the mark if that is our most important ministry. Perhaps Jesus' gospel, what we hear this morning in his exchange with Nicodemus, is that Jesus is more interested in the way that we come alongside one another in life, the ordinary moments that are bathed, wrapped, immersed in God's grace and love and compassion. Perhaps the criteria for everlasting life is right practice, appropriate practice, not right belief. That's more often the case. Do you believe or do you not believe? That's the criteria line. Take it or leave it. That's been the traditional emphasis, securing salvation, that that is the work of the church. When folks ask me, how's work going? They'll usually say, how's, how many souls are you saving? They say it tongue-in-cheek, but they don't really know what to ask. Soul-saving evangelism can be a hollow exercise. Let me offer you a, a witness from John Pavlovitz, who, who was wrapped up with this for quite some time, and then he realized how misguided it was. This is from an account that he had with his senior pastor when he was on staff. On a blistering June afternoon, I sat across from Stephen, my pastor at the time, in a Raleigh cafe. He was sharing his musings with the great amount of ministry that was being done in the city, but most notably in their building. He was concerned with how little ministry was out beyond the campus caring for the community, how in inwardly focused our students were, in his words. His answer was that if we wanted to be out in the community, we should do more evangelistic events which meant basically taking our slick Sunday salvation show out on the road. Stephen told me that the social justice thing was all well and good, but it wasn't saving anyone's soul. Instead, I pivoted in our conversation and shared stories 
about the pastoral care our ministry staff was doing for our teens, drowning in a sea of dysfunctional families, marriages, addictions, self-harm, and depression. I saw it as symptomatic of our community at large, lots of hurting people who were seriously in need of care. In need of care far more than entertainment. And he said quite matter-of-factly to me, John, it isn't an exaggeration to say that I have absolutely zero interest in ministering to people. I think I had an aneurysm, but I kept a poker face and quickly sipped my artisan ginger ale. In a few seconds, this pastor had summed up what agenda-based community in the church yields. A burning desire to get people saved and general apathy beyond that. We become fixated on people's eternal souls, but don't give much a damn about the rest of their earthly life. We convince ourselves that salvation is grasped only in an altar call, and not in the million ordinary moments where we live and breathe with the awareness of the presence of God. Nicodemus goes to Jesus at night, and it's telling. He could have had this conversation in the noonday sun, as Jesus later does, with a woman at the well, but Nicodemus goes at night and he says, Jesus, you are a trusted teacher. And then Jesus initiates some conversation with him about being born again or being born from above. Born again is the language we are most familiar with. Born from above is an equally appropriate translation there. Jesus goes on to offer some nebulous things about being born of water and the Spirit, comments on the nature of the flesh. He says the wind will blow where it will like the Spirit of God. But what is interesting is he he drops this line in there about the Son of Man being lifted up on a pole. Like Moses lifting the serpent. There's a curious story, I commend it to you. Numbers 21 where the Israelites, they've escaped, they've been brought into deliverance out of Egypt, and they're in the wilderness, and they're complaining, as is often the case, saying, God, the provisions aren't so good. We thought it would be a lot better out here than as slaves in Egypt. And God says, as insult to injury, here, here are serpents, deal with them. And the serpents begin to bite folks as punishment for their complaining. And Moses God have an exchange, and God says to Moses, take a serpent, fashion it into a bronze pole, and erect it, so that anyone who is repentant, if they are seriously repentant for complaining against me, bringing them into deliverance, they can look up at this bronze serpent, and it'll be an antidote for the snake bite. And that's how they will be saved and given new life. The very thing that was causing their death when they gaze upon it is what will bring them life. It's a really curious import. But for John and for Jesus in John's gospel, this moment of exaltation will be in the crucifixion. That it's there, the hour of glory, Jesus' moment will be in his crucifixion. It's decisively there that God does something to make eternal life possible. It's probably just a matter of language. We say eternal life, I say eternal life, and you think 
on the other side of the grave. Eternal life is living in the ordinary, the everyday when you depart here. Living in the accessible gift, the grace of God. You don't have to do anything for it. It is for you right now, tomorrow, all through this week. For John's gospel, there's, there's, a, there's a school term for it, realized eschatology. I don't expect you to remember it. You shouldn't. But just know that all that God does is for the right now. It doesn't have to be in the sweet by and by, though it will be. You don't have to wait. You don't have to endure all of life suffering now, wondering, when is it all going to pass? That reconciliation, that restoration, that gift of God to have life, to have it abundantly, is for the here and now. All the folks that Jesus encounters that come alongside him in John's Gospel, the woman at the well, the young man who's born blind and healed, and his parents who don't want to vouch for his identity, all of these folks have an encounter with Jesus, and that's the judgment, is how do you live as a response of encountering the unmerited gift of God. Now. Eternal life is right now. Your invitation is to go live like the grace of God is the most powerful transforming force at work in your life in this community, and in the lives of every beloved child of God that you will meet this week. Bless you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.